Let's then turn in our Bibles to the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Today we'll be reading from verse 45 all the way through verse 20, or chapter 20 to verse 8 of, of that chapter. So from 1945 all the way down to 20 verse 8. Okay? Let me read it to you. You can follow along in your own Bibles. Then he, that is Jesus, went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him, and they were unable to do anything. For all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is it here or who is it? That has given you this authority. But he answered and said to them. I also will ask you one thing. And answer me. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying. If we say from heaven he will say. Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men. All the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And then Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Amen. Today I really want to preach from verse, from verse 1 down to verse 8. But looking at, it in the, looking at it in the context in which it was written, here we see Jesus really in the last few days of his life before the crucifixion. He is in Jerusalem. It is festival time and he is worshipping at the temple. We see here that he has gone into the temple and has cleansed it. He has driven out. And if you were here last time, you'll remember that it said that, that it was... It had turned into a marketplace. The authorities, those people who ruled the temple, had transformed the, the, the courtyard of the Gentiles. A place that was supposed to be dedicated to the nations of the world being able to come and worship the God of the Jews. And they had turned it into a, a commercial place. They had belittled it, besmirched it, foiled it. There would have been pens of animals, of sheep, and there would have been the, the money changers, the, the, the men who were able to, to exchange your money, your denarii, for temple tokens. They were there, indeed, to make a merchandise of God's people. And we saw that Jesus there drove them out, cleansed the temple, chased all of these Merchants out of the temple. Indeed, he calls them a, uh, vipers and thieves. 
we saw the response of that then was the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the, the uh, religious and political authorities reacted strongly against that. We see in verse 47 of, of, of 19, it says that they sought a way to destroy him. It's remarkable that here is Jesus do, doing in the temple the things that they are supposed to be doing. They are supposed to be teaching and preaching and making known God's laws and ways to the people. And yet, instead of rejoicing with them, instead of giving thanks, they are full of hatred and bitterness and they seek to destroy Jesus. To destroy, literally meaning to extinguish or to tear down, to obliterate, to make no more. But it says in verse 48, they were unable to do anything because of the people. Why? Because the people were attentive to Jesus. The idea, or how it's thought, Jesus was sitting on the steps of the temple. And before him, the people would have been gathered. They would have their like a picnic situation. They would have their little blankets on the floor or their jackets on the ground. And they would have been sitting and they would have been listening. He would have been teaching them. His voice carrying from the stairs, from the, the, the terrace, and he, over the crowd. And it says that they were attentive. The word attentive means give ear. They were all ears. They were listening attentively. All ears. I like that expression because you, you, you get the picture right away. They were all ears. Can you imagine that for the very first time in this temple's history... For the very first time, it was being used for what it was dedicated to. Never before had the word been preached in this temple. And after Jesus, never again had it ever been used. This was perhaps the only time in this temple's history that it was used by God for the things of God. And instead of rejoicing, those who were in authority reacted negatively. Now in verse 20, or chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, As it happened on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, here we see the principal responsibility of, of a teacher, of God's people. He is preaching the gospel. He is making known the things of God. What a glorious and wonderful responsibility. He is preaching, teaching the good news. I think in a few short days he will be crucified. And he is doing the most important thing that he can do. He is preaching to them the good news of faith in Christ. That salvation is not by works. It is not by being good. It's not by trying to appease God by offerings and sacrifices, but rather by faith in him. We see that as he was doing this, that the chief priests, scribes, together with the elders, confronted him. The idea, the word confronted means like they appeared at once. It was like the word like ambushed him. Appeared from nowhere. Tried to catch him unawares. They came indignantly. 
with their robes, you know, and the, I can just see the swishing of their skirts as they push through. Now, we have to ask the question, who were the chief priests? Where does that expression come from? We know what a high priest is. A high priest is a descendant of Aaron who serves as the, the leader of the temple. But who are the chief priests? In the Bible, there is no mention of chief priests. Well, the chief priests were a system of administration. They're the bureaucrats who developed when the Israelites came back from, from exile. And after the Maccabean time, they really then began to privatize their religion. So the chief priests were basically an, an elected body who were there then to, to administrate and to run. When you think chief priests, think of the board of director and his board members. Think of the Pope and his cardinals. They are a religious body that has political and religious authority. The first of the chief priests would have been the high priest. The one who's supposed to, to give the, the, the splash the blood upon the altar, the highest authority, though the one anointed and appointed by God to intercede for Israel. The closest thing to an actual Messiah that Israel had, he was the one through whom God was supposed to flow. The high priest. And then together, under the high priest, you would have had the captain of the temple. That's a great name, the captain of the temple. He would have been the, the high priest's assistant and perhaps his successor. Oftentimes that position went to a son or a son-in-law. In this, in this particular case, it was a son-in-law. It was a job for the boys. The captain of the, the temple. The next then would have been the director of the weekly schedule. He was the man who, who appointed who would serve and who wouldn't serve over the weeks. You remember that they had three weeks on and then they period off. He, he was the one who drew up the schedules for, I think they had 24, 26 different schedules, weekly schedules that they would, or three weekly schedules that they would this is the man who had the authority to put people in power and take people out of power. He was the one who, if you had a son or a, who, who wanted to have a position, this is the guy that you would go and speak to and then he would put your name down, give you the good times or the bad times, the good, the good week or the bad week. And then after him, there was the director of the weekly schedule or the weekly course this is a man who then was responsible for the drawing up of the daily schedules of the temple. He had, I think it was 100 and, 150 something or 160 something different weekly schedules. Oh, 126, excuse me, the other way around. 126 different schedules that he had to then, uh, like, was responsible. He was like the director, the guy who made sure everything happened as it was supposed to happen. Very powerful man. And then after him, you had the overseer of the temple. The man who basically made sure that they had enough sheep, they had enough wood, they had enough oil, they had enough incense, they had enough showbread. He was the man who made sure that the, the temple was cleaned, that the toilets were cleaned or whatever. I know they had toilets, but you understand them. 
He was the, the basically the caretaker, the overseer of the, the how the temple was run. And then after him you had the treasurer or the the chancellor, the money man, the man who paid for everything. Very powerful thing. And then of course these men then had their entourages. So they came, they were the entourage of the high priest, but each one of those men had their own entourage. They had their, their sub-lieutenants. So they're coming as a body. But then also we see that he comes together with the scribes. Who were the scribes? The scribes were a body again that developed after the coming back from exile, after the Maccabeans. They were people who had dedicated their lives to understanding the law and being able to to uh, put it into practice. We, we would call them lawyers, basically. So if you had a disagreement and you wanted to see what was lawful, you would go to one of these scribes. They were the people who, who were the, the expert arguers. They got into the minutiae of everything. You know, They broke a law down. Do not kill. Well, what does it really mean to kill? And then they had subdivisions. Of a simple commandment. They broke the commandment down into like 40 different positions. They were the, 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 the lawyers, the arguers, the, 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 the diplomats. And then you had the, the elders of. It says here, and the elders. Together with the elders confronted. Who were the elders? The Sanhedrin. Now we know that in Jerusalem, a Sanhedrin normally comprised of about 23 to 71 people. A group, most towns had, you had, if you're a large town, you had 23 plus people who were your elders. They were political powers. These are the politicians. In Jerusalem, we know because of, of historical accounts, they had 70 elders. They had 70 rulers, politicians, full-time politicians who ruled the city. And here we have 70, the, the elders. Now, the high priest could have been one of those elders. The some of the scribes could have been some of those elders. But the elders, the 70, they're coming to Jesus. So it's not just a case of one or two men. I don't know about you. When I went to Sunday school many, many years ago, or when I taught Sunday school, we always kind of taught this that there was one or two men. You know, or there, was a, there was a little party of three or four guys who, who interrupted, came all indignantly and interrupted Jesus as he's, as he's teaching these small band of people. The real picture is Jesus is alone, sitting on the stairs. Before him is a sea of people. Not just thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people before him, silently listening to what he's saying. His words ringing out across the temple. And all of a sudden, this mob, this giant group of people come storming in, indignantly, brimming with offense, coming to Jesus. And again, it's not just one or two. We, we, we see like an entire squad of people. The 70 alone, 70 elders alone, the highest politicians of the land, the most respected men in the country. It was really difficult to become a member of the Sanhedrin. 
Here we have the Sanhedrin members, the scribes, and the chief priests. Think if we were having our conference. No, I'll get that one there. But you think that this isn't just anybody. These are the most important men in the country. It's like having the prime minister or the president come with his his, uh, board or whatever they call them, cabinet. Remember... In Israel, there was no separation between religion and politics. They were two. If you were a high-ranking religious leader, you had great political power. It was a theocracy. Political people ruled. Much like the Roman Catholic Church and the cardinals and the bishops, they had great political power. The Pope could say to a king, Bow down before me and kiss my feet. And the king would have to do it. Well in Israel it was quite similar with the high priest and the chief priests. They had tremendous power. We see this great embargo of these people coming to him and demanding of him. The idea, they come and they ask these two questions. And it's an attempt by them to wrestle back power. It's an attempt by them to get their temple back. Remember, this is a high time, a a festival time for them. This is when they make their money through the franchises and through the, the money changing and through the, the spying and selling of sacrifices. They, they make their money during this weekend or this week. And here's Jesus has just cancelled out any of all that. There is no buying or selling going on. There is no exchanging of money. All they're doing is sitting listening to Jesus teach. And they're losing, with every moment that goes by, they're losing money. And now they're trying to wrestle back control from Jesus. They come with an offence. Remember, They're the highest authority. They're the legal authority. They're the the recognized religious leaders. And yet Jesus is not of them. And if you wanted to do anything religious, if you wanted to go and be a priest, the high priest and the the chief priest must recognize you first. If you wanted to go and preach somewhere, well, the director of the weekly or daily course or schedule would have to give you permission. You'd have to get a permit to go and speak. You'd have to be recognized. Jesus didn't have any of those things. Indeed, this is their temple. They own this temple. They have owned it all their lives. They are the highest authority in this temple. And here comes Jesus, this Carpenter from Nazareth, this this nobody, this illiterate in their understanding, country bumpkin, Polandi, kind of that kind of. And here he is, and he has taken over their temple. They must have been so offended by him. He must have been such a tremendous offense to them. They are seeking to take back their temple. And then also they're seeking to entrap Jesus. It's not enough for Jesus to ask them permission. It's not enough simply for them to to give their blessing. They not only want to stop him, but to destroy him. 
Remember the word means to extinguish, to tear down, to put away, to trample. They are looking for a way to destroy Jesus and they think that they have found the way. They're coming with two very legitimate questions. Very legitimate. Now, I was thinking this this week. We have a, our yearly conference. Imagine during our yearly conference, someone comes and just takes over it and gets up onto the stage and begins to preach without our permission, without asking us. We don't really know who he is. We, we've heard rumors about him, but we've never met him. He gets up and he begins to preach and teach. And I, can, I can guarantee within a few short moments, Don and I, together with a few of you, will go and speak to that young man and say, excuse me. And there are two questions we'll ask him. Who do you think you are? And who gives you the right to do this? Two very legitimate questions, aren't they? And here are the chief priests, the scribes and the elders coming to Jesus and they're questioning his authority because this is their place and only they have the right, according to their view, to do what they want to do. And Jesus, in his wonderful wisdom, he he then answers their question, but he doesn't answer the question in the way that they want him to. To answer the question. Because they're, they're trying to entrap him. If he says I'm the Messiah. He'll say, they'll say. Well who made you the Messiah? God did. And why didn't God tell us. That God made you the Messiah? I, mean, I can understand that. If someone said to me. God has sent me. We've seen this before. Jesus has sent me to speak to you. We've had men come here. And say Jesus has sent me to speak to you. And I have replied. Well why didn't Jesus tell me first. Before he sent you. So they're looking to trip him and to trip. That's why the scribes are there. To try and get this discourse to disrupt the teaching, to, to wrestle back and to cause doubt. They're looking for a, an argument and a fight. And yet Jesus answers this, and, and I love this, this, this. I will ask you one thing. And then it says here, my Bible. And answer me. But the correct way of saying it is. And give me a statement. He's asking for an official comment. He's looking. The word there is statement. And give me a statement. What's the official opinion? What's the official view on John? Who is called the Baptist. His baptism. Now we understand what his baptism was. It was a call to Israel to repent of their idolatry of their sinfulness and to rededicate themselves to the one true God. And all of, all of Israel, I can't say that, a great number of Israel responded and recognized that John was the first prophet that God had sent to the nation in 300 years. And they responded and they acted in repentance. They, they, they were baptized as an outward illustration of an inward reality of their repentance. But the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, they did not. Remember, John calls them, you brood of vipers. He has warned you of the judgment that is to come. Produce fruit in accordance with repentance. 
They were trying to do the outward but refused to do the inward. And they refused and probably they were instrumental in the arrest of John the Baptist. Remember as he was preaching against uh, the king's illicit affair with his brother. His brother's wife, sorry. And it got him in, got him in prison. Eventually cost him his head. These men are trying to entrap Jesus, to tie him up in knots, to wrestle back authority, to get back their temple. And Jesus again says, if you want to know who I am, just look at John. And he ties himself. See, the people knew, the people believed it was public opinion that John was a prophet. No man had ever spoken like John. I mean, Jesus says about John that among all the people born until that time, all the people from Adam until that point, no man was ever like John the Baptist. He was unique. He was special. He was powerful. His, we know of no miracles that John the Baptist ever did, yet revival. The man saw revivals like no one's ever saw revivals before. There was tremendous power in his preaching. And all the people recognized that he was a prophet. And John the Baptist testified about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. I am not worthy of untying or tying his sandal strap. John testified about Jesus. And so Jesus is connecting himself to John the Baptist. If you want to know who I am, look to John the Baptist. And he asks them for a statement. An official statement about John. Because once they agreed with John, as they rightly point out, they would have to say, Jesus would then naturally turn around and say, well, why didn't you then respond and believe and be baptized? And change your life in accordance with John's teachings. And they couldn't have that. Because then they would lose their lifestyle. They would lose the things that they loved. They loved this world. Remember Jesus in his preaching against false teachers. Against the Pharisees. He, he just demonstrates so clearly how false they were. And how in love they were with the thing, outward things of this life. And they rejected righteousness and truth. Jesus asks them for an official statement about John the Baptist. And yet, though they know the truth, because they knew that he was from God. They knew. Yet they did not want to believe because it would be at a cost of their own luxuries, lifestyle. They'd have to bow the knee to the word. And they did not want that. They did not want Christ to reign over them. They wanted to be able to reign over Christ. It's like the old saying, everybody wants to get to heaven. They just don't want God to be there when they get there. Jesus challenges them. And they refuse, point blank refuse. Let us not wonder and be amazed at the blindness of false religion. Of those who claim to be the religious authorities and yet cling to their godless traditions and rituals. Though 
Jesus himself might come before them and make these things known. Though they may have, Lazarus was probably there in the crowd. Remember, Lazarus was raised from the dead like a week before this. And he's probably there in the crowd. And everybody's looking at Lazarus going, he's the guy who was dead. And he was in the grave and stank. He came out. He's out there, he's alive. Wow. I wonder if Lazarus had to sign autographs, you know. (coughs) Don't know. That's the guy. Wow. And yet, though the evidence was right before their eyes, they willfully would not believe. Would not. It's not that they could not. It's that they would not. Would not. They were. And they wouldn't admit it. They wouldn't admit it. Not because. They were ashamed of the answer. They, were, they didn't admit it because they, they, they were confused. They didn't admit it because they knew that the people would react badly. They were afraid of losing popularity with the people. They were more afraid of what the people were thinking than what God was thinking. It really demonstrates that they did not believe in God. It really demonstrates that they were religious only by name and not by nature. That their God was their belly, their earthly appetites, because they have no fear of heaven. They do not care what is right. They only care about what looks right. And so therefore then, they refused to answer. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. Now we know that was a lie because they, they said in the previous verses, they did not know A very safe answer. We're not sure. We're not sure. Haven't got a clue. Could have been from... Your guess is as good as mine. Might have been from God. Might have been. And Jesus then replies to them. And neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And Jesus just refused. He, He does not reward their... Ignorance and their arrogance and their refusal to answer the question with any more answers. To him who has, more shall be given. But to him who does not have, even that which he has shall be taken from him. We can't expect God to bless you when you are refusing to believe in him. You can't expect God to pander to you Whenever you point blank stick the heels in like a, like a little rebellious toddler. Yeah, they lint. I don't want to. Jesus does not play the game with them. He does not reward them for their bad behavior. He simply refuses. And they knew that they were beaten. Think again, this delegation. The most powerful people in the land. The chief priest with his big hat and his mega robes and his bling. And all of the, 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 the high priest and all, the, all of the chief priests around him with their, their ceremonial robes and their money. They, they just screamed luxurious. And their big bellies. I imagine they're always hefty big guys. And their security force 
And the politicians always kind of being pulled along behind. Following the money. And here's Jesus. Little country Jesus. Little homeless Jesus. Sitting there. And saying well. I'm not going to respond to you. If you're not going to make a statement. I will not then make a statement either. And they knew that they were beaten. How do we know? They did not press the case. They, they gave up. They gave in. They turned away. They, they retreated because they knew that if they pressed anymore, they would have to be, they'd have to answer who was John. And if John was from God and he then made statements about Jesus, surely then you know who Jesus is, he is from God. They did not want that. They didn't want to, to paint themselves into a corner. They did not want to, to entrap themselves, which they already had. Because as soon as they refused to answer the statement or to make a statement, the whole world knew. It was obvious that they were motivated by political and financial means. Now, when I was reading this this week and thinking about this thing, well, how then do we, we apply that into our own situations? Because here we see Jesus, and it's very obscure. How is this then relevant to you and to me? And the idea is that even still today, the portrayers of false religion those people who claim to have the religious monopoly on truth. We think of the Roman Catholic Church with the Pope and the bishops. We think of Martin Luther standing before the, the Diet of Worms. Those and trying to silence him, to make him recant, to take back his words. You and I may not be put in a position where we'll have to stand like Martin Luther before the Diet of Worms. Where we have to give an account of the things that we say. But in our day and daily lives, we are challenged as to the authority of Jesus. Jesus, Did Jesus have the right to teach in the temple? Did Jesus have the right... To proclaim the gospel? Did anyone have the right to silence him? Were the systems of man in authority over Jesus? So that he would have to ask permission to seek for a permission slip or a contract? That he would be able to preach here, there or anywhere? Now you and I, we live in an age of untold freedom. The world has never had freedom as it has had today. But you think that religious freedom was only granted in Finland in, in 1913. And before that, you could be per- persecuted by the law. You could be imprisoned for preaching outside a Lutheran, con- in, in a, outside a Lutheran congregation, outside a Lutheran church. If you did not baptize your baby, you could be imprisoned for child abuse. Because you were damning your child to hell. 
that you were preaching a false gospel. Indeed, in many Roman Catholic countries, even up until the 1950s, if you had a Bible in the common language, not in Latin or in Greek, you could face imprisonment because it was considered heresy to have a Bible in the, in the, in the language of the people. Ridiculous. Again, you and I may not have to be like Jesus and stand before a religious authority, but in our day and daily lives, we do face the temptations, the tribulation, I want to use that word, trial. Who is the greatest authority in your life? Who is it who decides what you do and where you go and what you say? Is it God, the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it a religious leader? Is it a political leader? Is it the, the law of the land or the state? Very charged questions. Again, these weren't just priests. These were the politicians of the land. These were the lawmakers of the land. These were the most powerful people in the country. And yet Jesus withstood them to their face. He didn't do it rudely. He didn't protest. He didn't riot. Didn't go into revolution. He simply stood for the truth and spoke that which was right and confounded them with their own questions. And then went back to what he was supposed to be doing. A silent, well, you can't say Jesus was a silent protest because he went back to, to teaching and to preaching the gospel. Beloved, who is the greatest authority in your life? That's a hard question, isn't it? Because we, we are by nature very lawful people. You know, we try and keep the speed limits. We try and uh, pay our taxes. Well, we do uh, pay our taxes. We, we don't live lawlessly. We law, live lawfully. But if the, the law of the land or the unspoken law of the land then dictates to us to try and relinquish control of our spiritual lives to another, what are we to do? Well, the answer, of course, beloved, is we are to obey God, but to do so righteously. Not in riot, not in open rebellion, not soliciting or eliciting people to open chaos or anything like this here. We're not, we're not like the, God forgive me, we're not like the Americans who are ratting all this nonsense, running around with guns and shooting one another. Just ridiculous, childish. We are to be as Christ. We are just to get on with what we're supposed to be doing. Living our lives to the glory of God. So that no man anywhere can, can accuse us of lawlessness or illicit living. Who is the greatest authority in our life? These men came to Jesus seeking to destroy him. Not because they did not believe that he was Messiah. They came to destroy him because they believed that he was the Messiah. 
They came to wrestle back control and to establish their dominance and to, I think it was probably the, the preaching of the gospel that really, that really got them cross. Jesus' teaching, it was not by sacrifice nor by ceremony that a person came to faith, but through faith and faith alone. And they couldn't have that because their whole system was held together by sacrifices and by ceremonies, by the rituals. Let us stand together and stand together with Christ in our commitment to the gospel. That we will preach the gospel. That we will gather together. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be obedient to the, 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 the government in as much as we can be. Absolutely we should. But we must always understand that Christ's authority supersedes the world's authority. In our own own lives we should never be afraid of of the mob or the they the community the culture who comes to try and silence us from teaching God's word and preaching the gospel our authority comes from God and who are we we are the children of God sent by him into this world to be both salt and light to have an influence and to be seen and to bring light to others who are in darkness. They will never see the truth unless they see it in and through you and me. Let's stand together with Christ. Never forget that you're called to be salt and light. And salt and light. For though you've ever been in a dark place and suddenly somebody turns the light on and you're like, ah! And for that brief moment, your eyes sting. You're blinded. Turn the light off. Don't want to get up. Or if you ever have had, you know, in the olden days, salt was used as a, 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 a what's the word that cleanses a wound? Antiseptic. Antiseptic. Yes. A purifier. So if you cut yourself, they would clean it with salt water. You know, to try and clean that wound. Keep the bacteria out. And if you have a, a paper cut or a, and you put your finger in salt, <gasps> or it, I get ulcers, you know, the little ulcers you get on your lips, and I put salt on it, and like, ah, it hurts. It kills the little bacteria that causes the ulcer on the inside of your mouth. There's a stinging effect. As salt and light, we are called not to be a a sugary influence, not to be some sort of hypnotizing slow dawn. But you and I are to be right and clear and righteous. And though it might sting, and though it might cause people a little bit of inconvenience, you and I must be true to our natures in Christ. Beloved, who is an authority in your life? To whom do you bow the knee? Who are you with? Let us not give in to the, the, the bullying tactics of this world. Let us not give in to those who would silence us and have us change the gospel to something convenient and comfortable. Let us be true. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please, Lord, we ask of you that you would help us as Jesus 
was faithful, Lord, in the preaching and the teaching and the preaching of the gospel. Help us also, Lord. We desire to be faithful. You have called us to be faithful ones. Please, Lord, help us to be faithful in our hearts. To fear you more than to fear the, the mobs of men. Help us, O oh God, not to be so enamored by the things of this world. Lord, by fame and fortune, by luxurious things, Lord, by money, mammon, that we silently sit by and let the world go to hell. Lord, we know that the world knows that you are the one true God. We know that the world knows that you are Christ, the Savior, and yet, Lord, it chooses not to believe. It turns away. It desires darkness and decay. Oh, Lord, please be merciful. You who are the Savior of the world, you are the one who comes and redeems people, the rescuer of the nations. We pray, come and rescue and redeem. Save, Lord, and sanctify a people for yourself. Lord, you have purchased them with your own blood. Now, Lord, apply that salvation to their hearts. Let them, Lord, believe in you and repent and turn from their wicked ways and follow after you, you who are their saviour and their king. Oh, Lord, I pray, help us, Lord, that we might be obedient until the very end. Lord God, that we who are good citizens of this nation, Lord, that we would demonstrate, Lord, your righteousness, your goodness. That, Lord, we would be motivated and moved by you, by your word. And that all men might see that you are our king. Lord God, we pray be glorified, be exalted. We ask this for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.